Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Remastered, a collaboration. Today, we are joined, we are very fortunate to be joined by Ben Jacobs. His name is Benjamin, but he prefers Ben, so I learned, of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. Ben is a great guy. I know I say that everyone who joins me is a great guy, which I kind of have to say, but also I wouldn't have... (laughs) I'm going to censor that. I'm not going to say anything. I wouldn't have mean people on my podcast, let's say. I'll only have people I like, or I'll only have people that actually respond to my emails, whichever one. The best is somewhere in between. They are both nice and respond to my emails, but there you go. I'll only email them if they're nice. Anyway, Ben Jacobs is nice, and he does a great job in Wittenberg to Westphalia covering things and making religious wars interesting, even though they happened, like, in many cases over a thousand years ago, and bringing us up to speed and colouring in some very necessary details on the likes of wars that I have covered, which we do get into. We cover a lot of interesting details in this episode, guys. Everything from Frederick the Great, maybe being a bit of a lovable scamp, as Ben likes to call him, to, well, somehow we even get Empire Total War in there. You'll see, it's, it's a great talk. It's a great chat between two guys, two history friends, just shooting the breeze on the mid-18th century and, well, pretty much everything else because we just can't contain ourselves as well. So I hope you guys enjoy it. 
another collaboration episode because, hey, yous are all worth it. So, if you would like to check out Wittenberg to Westphalia, make sure you go to Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast dot Weebly, that's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. Upon doing so, upon clicking on the website, you will be transported to a wonderful place and you'll thank me for it. Make sure you do. Ben's a good guy. He's a friend of the podcast and he can be a friend of yours as well. That again, Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast dot weebly dot com. Okay, so let's get right into this. The next voices you hear. Oh, I can't say that. That's what I say for Sean and I. Okay, so after the noise plays, you will hear my voice and you will also hear Ben's. Enjoy, guys. You deserve it. start just i mean normally me and sean go back on the podcast and my guest is always sean say hello sean but you're not sean so and uh, <laughs> i think i think we'll just i don't know just awkwardly start like right now so welcome to the podcast benjamin jacobs do you prefer ben or benjamin uh ben actually ben and thanks is. for having me <laughs> oh, you're very welcome it's it's a pleasure i love doing these things because it's great to kind of link up with other podcasters whose historical interests are as weird as mine. So <laughs> you're, very, you're very welcome on. <laughs> Excellent. We're here today to talk about the Seven Years' War, somewhat against your will, because I sort of semi-selected you for this episode and didn't really give you a choice in the matter, but you didn't <laughs> refuse or run away, so <laughs> the fault is all yours. Um, I absolutely love the Seven Years' War, and it's something I'm never going to get to talk to in my podcast. So uh, I'm excited to be talking about it <laughs> oh okay cool so I'm, I'm basically i'm doing you a favor you should be paying me really exactly <laughs> i'm getting paid for this <laughs> i mean uh i mean uh <laughs> yeah sure just uh give me your bank details there i'll uh I'll forward you through a load of uh stuff yeah so yeah okay cool well i suppose we could just get started with the with the way the war started really i mean sure 1756 it was a, a year of much turmoil by that point the french and british had already been fighting each other in in the likes of uh, the americas and india etc for a while they hadn't worked they hadn't really wanted the war to become a world war so to speak because they'd only fought one of those a little while before and they were trying to be somewhat conservative i suppose you could say the war of the austrian succession only ended in in 1748 so by 1754, when like the the foreign the foreign wars began, they I think it was a kind of mutual decision to keep it quiet, but uh, that didn't last very long. By by spring or so in 1756, it kind of got out into the open. How yeah. much how much do you know? Now this may be just putting you on the spot, but I believe you said your interest is your interest or your knowledge area more in the American part of the conflict. Yeah, generally speaking, I've I've done more of a study on the the French and Indian wars. Uh, just out of pure interest because of its importance to the eventual American Revolution, and then it's it's kind of fun on its own. But that did lead me to studying the Seven Years' War and in Europe, and then learning about all the rest of the you know Second Hundred Years' War and all that fun stuff, which is just completely crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was only just saying to Steve how it's like every single every single power it seems is at war at some stage and like if they're not it's almost like people are like well why aren't you <laughs> like, <kind of> thing. <laughs> um, like the dutch for example are, are neutral in this war 
for the whole of this war and through the entirety of this war they are bombarded with messages mainly from britain being like <laughs> why why don't you just like stop playing around like stop kidding yourselves just kind of take part in the war sort of thing and uh, like the two the two other neutrals in iberia uh, spain and portugal had been neutral up to uh, 1762 and they only really uh, jumped in then in the last year i suppose they kind of caved under the under the judging eyes of everyone else <laughs> but uh but yeah the dutch did not the dutch remained neutral is there anything in particular in the in the kind of american now, this is a very broad question but sometimes <laughs> it's fun to open with broad questions so is there anything in particular in like the american kind of theater of the conflict so to speak that kind of really draws you in the political aspect of it is sort of what's become most interesting to me. Like, from a historical narrative, the story of the British throwing repeated armies up into Canada and getting them massacred by the French and mostly the Native American allies. But th throughout the entire thing, there's this sort of British pretension that, you know, they're from the motherland, they do real wars over in Europe, and, you know, this, this whole thing is kind of, uh, they should just be mopping everything up. They're just dealing with naked savages out in the woods and, you know, refusing to listen to the advice of the colonials yeah. and getting massacred. But yeah. then on the flip side, you know, the colonials just couldn't get their act together. Mm, yeah. uh, one of the big overarching themes from a, a political or a logistic side is the, the colonies refused to work together. They would really only work under British leadership but then got annoyed when the British insisted that, you know, colonial militia ranks weren't equivalent to regular soldier ranks. Oh, that's <laughs> and, uh And the British just got increasingly annoyed that the colonial legislatures were insisting that they go through this whole parliamentary process every year in order to requisition supplies. The Pennsylvania legislature was basically under the thumb of a bunch of Quakers who were pacifists, despite, mm. you know, their, their Western territories getting burned to the ground. And yeah. uh, <laughs> the part of the reason it took the British so long to turn things around in the French and Indian War was just this process of working through the results of basically just ignoring the political situation in their <laughs> colonies for a century beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's very interesting, like a very interesting lead in, really. And of course, I think that that ignorance of, of affairs on the ground kind of culminates in, in the explosion of the American uh, Revolution, really, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, totally. The, there was so much built up animosity that in the wake of this whole thing, because the British were just like, these people can't, you know, find the rear with both hands. And the <laughs> colonials are going, you know, these people are so, they're just looking down their noses at us. They don't know what's really going on when they actually come over here. Who are they to tell us what's going on when their armies keep marching into the woods and getting massacred? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> that mutual miscomprehension sort of continued to build until some people did some things with some tea and... You know, mm. the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> some revolutions were had, some Georges marched in some places. <laughs> the <Exactly>. usual. <laughs> yes. Cool, all right. Well, I, what I always found interesting about this, and again, uh, I, was, I was talking to Steve about how people, like, in my house, the way, when I was growing up, the way I, I gauge my level of historical nerdiness by <laughs> asking my dad if he knows about the war, and if he knows about the war, then that generally means he probably talked to me about it when I was younger. Now, he would have talked to me, like, just kind of told me interesting facts about, say, the Franco-Prussian War, the War of the Spanish Succession. 
Mm-hmm. Th- those were two wars. Then when I went to cover them, I was like, right, this is what happens. And then discovering that there's so much more to the story. But the Seven Years War wasn't the Seven Years War. In our house, it was always like the French and Indian Wars because of my oh. dad's. Uh, my dad had a big interest and still does in in that kind of part of history. Sure. Um, so to me, I discovered this. Obviously, you, you you go, you see you see a jewel, and then you walk in and and pick up the jewel, and you discover there's an entire mine full of <laughs> precious diamonds everywhere. I mean, that's that's what I compare it to. <laughs> yeah. Like comparing history to uh, to precious diamonds, but yeah, that's that's how it, that's how it felt when I discovered all this stuff was there. It was amazing. Jumped right into the Seven Years' War, and I'm not really sure where I'm going with this point, but basically, the fact that there was so much more to this story than I realized, and then of course I discovered Frederick the Great. Yes, and that, uh, indeed how lovable, great he was. That lovable scamp. Oh, the lovable <laughs> scamp. Yeah, well, I can tell you now for sure he wasn't lovable to uh, to certain people whose names whose names rhyme with uh, Paria Laresa, if you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. We were talking a little bit before we started about how warfare just seems to have been a bit of a game to the European aristocracy at this time. And Oh, yeah, you know, big time. Fred- Frederick definitely was the, the classic example of just starting wars mm. because he wanted to. <laughs> yeah, and starting wars for really kind of like mean and in modern terms offensive uh, pretexts as well. Like in, the, in one war that I haven't really covered, the War of the Austrian Succession in 1740, I don't know how much you know about that, but there was, leading up to that, the Austrian emperor at the time, I think it was Archduke Charles, I think that's who it was, before he died, he made all the European powers agree to recognize his daughter as the empress, essentially, and as the ruler of the Habsburg line. And of course, the reason why he had to do this was because they couldn't accept a woman. Right. But uh, the, I think it was called the Pragmatic Sanction was the name of it. And it yeah. basically was a list of terms, one of which was accept my daughter, Maria Theresa, as the as the as the Empress. Fair enough, like she's the next in line. As soon as Charles died and, and Maria Theresa ascended to the throne, Frederick attacked uh, Silesia and, and took it for Prussia on the pretext that well she's a woman, so it's not valid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh, these days that would be kind of frowned upon as a as an opinion to have of, of yes. a woman ruling from a position of power, but Frederick didn't really think in terms of PC. He kind of just thought in terms of, I want to expand Prussia. And actually grabbing Silesia in terms of historical significance for Prussia, that was literally grabbing a whole cupboard full of steroids and just chugging them down all at once. Because as soon as Prussia did that, it was like never the same. It went from being this backwater in the north of Europe. What's his name? Uh, Christopher Clark and uh, Iron Kingdom really kind of points to the grabbing of Silesia as the kind of moment when Prussia, like, it, well, it, it expanded out, out of its own natural borders, really, but also it just, like, Silesia, in comparison to Prussian land, Silesian land was far better. Um, um, yeah. it, it had watered, like, Austrian armies and some, uh, all sorts of stuff, but, I mean, th- that Prussia grabbed it, and then, essentially, it was like the Alsace-Lorraine effect, I like to call. Maria Theresa was so angry at, at Frederick for doing this, that for the next uh, 20 years, she kind of made it her mission to not only take it back from Frederick, but basically to destroy Frederick for basically saying that she couldn't rule because she was a woman <laughs> kind of thing. I, I want to come back to the Silesia thing, but I think it's just ironic that in the, the Seven Years' War, Frederick almost got himself ground down to dust by two women. <laughs> yes, that is. And in a way, that's like his comeuppance, really, isn't it? Like, yeah. 
and the, yeah and the two of them as well they were they were dead set against them it wasn't just oh we're fighting the war because it's beneficial like the famous site of the the Tsarina Elizabeth uh, it was like the quote was um oh she was she donated half of her dresses for the war effort <laughs> right and right. you'd be thinking oh that's not that big a deal but then you realize she has 15,000 dresses <laughs> so <laughs> that made a bit of an impact on the on the on the Russian war effort yeah. yeah, I said in the um, I said in the latest uh, the latest version of it, I went into more detail. I think about the kind of the animosity really between Frederick and his uh, and his the women that he had scorned, so to speak. Um, and really, this was the chickens coming home to roost. Frederick was in big trouble, and as you said, it was primarily because of these two women. Yeah, and France, France essentially in this war was. Not all that effective, except for certain critical points, mainly because they were fighting the British, but also because the French had this weird strategy in this war, which probably explains why they lost so much colonial territory. Yeah. But they had this weird strategy of focusing just on Europe, on the understanding that whatever they took in Europe, they could then trade with the British in order to get back whatever colonial yeah. stuff they lost. As a result, of course, they ended up losing everything <laughs> rather than gaining anything at all, because... On the planning board, you know, on paper, that made sense because they didn't yeah. have fleet and they had, you know, the army that under Louis the Fourteenth had threatened the entirety of Europe. But now sure. they were under Louis the Fifteenth, and they just kept bashing their head against freaking Hanover. Oh, yeah. And, like, <laughs> and, the, the funny thing is, like, Hanover, you wouldn't think it would be that much, but it just embarrassed France again and again. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the colonies, the British are flinging army after army into the woods and getting it destroyed by naked people with bows and arrows. Yeah. <laughs> if the French had put in any kind of supplies, you know, maybe things would have been a little bit different. <laughs> I'm sure it would have been, yeah. The, the big issue here, I mean, part of it was this idea that on the, on the grand strategy board, this whole idea of focusing on one theater of war seems sensible and good. But then, of course, on the other hand, it's kind of difficult to supply your your colonies when the British Navy are out patrolling the seas like wolves. Yeah. So there's only so much you can realistically do anyway. But yeah. the uh, the singular focus kind of on just on Europe meant that when Europe failed, they had no real <laughs> strategy to fall back on, and boy did Europe fail. Yeah. Them. So I want to go back to um, Silesia as a you know the the cabinet of steroids for Prussian power. <laughs> yeah. One of the sure. Conventional bits of knowledge about Prussian power is that it was based entirely on military system, which interestingly to me seems sort of like a an early version of you know mass mobilization, which is something that would put Napoleon's armies over the edge for everybody. And, and it just it struck me. I would I just listened to your original version of the episode. What it's one of the things that struck me while I was listening is that there was so much that happened in this war that was sort of like the first time these things that these states' power were so tied to were coming out into the, the open. And, like, the British banking system was just, like, such a key part of their power that they could fund Prussia, um, wage a war on three continents, and come out of the other end smelling like roses while the rest of... while Russia, which is the largest land power in Europe, was bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, at big time, yeah. I mean, they were essentially the bankrollers of... Of Europe, I mean, even in in the war, the Spanish succession. I was looking at before. It's like when Britain dropped out of it. It was like, it was like everyone else was like, "Well, now what do we do?" Because our, <laughs> our essentially our paymaster is gone, kind of thing. <laughs> and that was a big part of it here. Uh, it wasn't really until 1759 when you had a coalition government 
um, in Britain, uh, which essentially was led on the understanding that we need to support Prussia rather than just leave Prussia alone to to fight by itself in Europe. And that was where the initiative in Hanover came from. And that also came from the George II appealing to the British people. And I don't know how this was successful, considering the xenophobia of Britain back then. But he basically appealed that the ancestral home of the British monarchy was under attack. And as a result, in 1757 and, and 58, he got a load of new recruits and was able to send them essentially to uh, to free Hanover from the French occupation. And after that, the French were just on the back foot the entire time. But yeah, more more to your point, it seems like the British were such an essential cog in the international system, sort of like what the Dutch were like a century or even 50 years before this, where people couldn't do anything really economic. They couldn't they couldn't say to themselves, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just ignore the Dutch then because they, they don't really matter. I mean, economically speaking, if you didn't talk to the Dutch, then you were going to be in trouble because naval insurance, they had the first one of the first banking systems in Europe in the, in the early modern era, certainly. And the, the level of sophistication in terms of like currency and, and all that kind of thing, it was just second to none. This is kind of a roundabout way of saying by this point, Britain was essentially that in Europe, um, <laughs> which meant that you couldn't afford to, f- like, if you fought against them, you better have allies. And if you fought with them, you better do all in your power to kind of, like, take advantage of the advantages, I suppose, that they had in, in economics, really. Yeah. It's just interesting to see, like, the different pieces that we assume of the modern state system were really coming out but each of them were sort of coming up in a different place you know england had this financial system france had a pretty heavily centralized government prussia was touching on everyone's life and organizing them into these regiments and pulling them (laughs) into the army and russia was just flinging large numbers of people across the border (laughs) yeah things some things don't change so it's interesting that silesia was just uh the the little extra thing that Prussia needed to turn this, you know, military system just to give it the funding to get it really rolling. Yeah, um, it's comparable in a way to what Egypt was to the Roman Empire. I mean, obviously, in terms of distance between them, like they always said that Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And that was kind of for the next for the next stages of its existence. Prussia was sorted, essentially, agriculture wise, because it had this steady steady factory of bread really i love all these metaphors that i'm using (laughs) for silesia but it was just like it provided prussia with the luxuries that it didn't used to have except by kind of direct trade and now it could have them by these lands it had conquered yeah that's really interesting because i mean notoriously prussia is just like sand and yeah (laughs) yeah and that like that's how uh, Christopher Clark's book starts it's kind of like a reverse murder mystery like we know that Prussia became Germany became world power etc but it started off in in the sands of, of of northern Europe how did it grow to become what it became and yeah. a big a big part of that is is Silesia really so one one thing that always occurs to me whenever I read about the seven years war learn about hear about it, learn about it, whatever. Here's Frederick the Great. Uh, in t- the seri- a series of like two wars, he takes Prussia from being a bunch of people with very good discipline living on sand to, yeah. being, <laughs> to fighting off the entirety of Europe one at a time, just bopping them all on the nose and you know, ending up super bloody, but still standing at the end of it. 
And then the next war is the Napoleonic Wars, and Prussia is just, they're not a joke, but they're just a footnote to everything that's going on. They just get blasted through again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. And I think, in a way, you're you're dead right there, but in another sense, I mean, everyone, militarily speaking, everyone was a footnote to Napoleon for a good time <laughs> um, until they kind of figured out what was going on. Like, if you compare the, like, you're right, though, if you compare the, the military performance of the Prussians throughout the Seven Years' War. I mean, even in defeat, they were far more impressive than the Prussians were, like, two or three generations later. I think yeah. a good a good bit of it had to do where they were just outclassed and they mm. kind of rested on their laurels. A lot like what Sweden did with its empire. In comparison to Sweden, Prussia was able to reinvent itself, mainly by reaching down south uh, and just expanding, whereas Sweden didn't really have much places to expand to. And also Sweden couldn't really depend on a pre-existing kind of Germanic culture that, that Prussian had. I mean, there was no Swedes living in Pomerania or, say, the likes of like the right. other parts of Germany, for example. So they had to conquer it by force. In, in a way, Prussia did the same thing, but Prussia at least had uh, German cousins, you could say, to kind of conscript yeah. rather than like foreign speaking people that they had to forcibly put into their armies. Right. Oh, that, that actually brings up an interesting point it's something of a tangent but speaking of bringing people into your army frederick conquered saxony and then brought them into his orbit during the seven years war that was audacious and how did that work (laughs) (laughs) to be honest that was one of the things i'd always been puzzled about and even in christopher clark's book he doesn't mention too much about it christopher clark is like my kind of go-to guy for these kinds of things because sure. um, he gave such a good analysis of, of Prussia. So check out Iron Kingdom if you, if you haven't already, <laughs> listeners. It wasn't, it can't have been a permanent solution because later on during the Austro-Prussian War, a big part of the settlement that happens. Now this, if you thought your point was a tangent, this is going to seem like <laughs> extreme tangent, but part of the peace settlement that Austria made with Prussia during the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 was that the Saxons would get special status within the North German Confederation that Prussia was setting up because the Saxons had defended, as an ally of Austria during that war, they had defended the Austrian position. So because of that, they must have been independent. Otherwise, they would have been like attached to Prussia after this war in the 1700s. And if they had been, then surely by that point in 1866, they would have been even more so. So... More to your point, um, as far as how it worked, he simply marched in there and like Prussia was a lot bigger than Saxony at this stage. I mean, it had Silesia behind it. At one stage, Saxony was a far more impressive power. I mean, even during the Thirty Years' War, John George of Saxony was the name of the elector. Wow, that's going back a bit, but he was the elector of Saxony during most of the Thirty Years' War. He was far more important than George William of Brandenburg was, but that changed obviously over time. Um, And Saxony kind of became not a non-entity because uh, at the start of the 1700s, the Saxons were actually very active in Poland. um, And it kind of led to the war of the Polish succession because the Saxons essentially used their uh, position to, well, take the throne of Poland, really, uh, (laughs) a few times. They seemed somewhat obsessed with it um, and just went for it over and over again. But yeah... I suppose by this point, the Saxons just couldn't defend themselves against the actual, like, the size and power of Prussia. I mean, 
Saxony would have been a, not a minnow, but it would have been much smaller geographically and in terms of practical power. I suppose yeah. that's why they focused on Poland because it was a handy way for for a German prince to make a name for himself, just like all the other German princes seem to be doing. Yeah, I think that gets to um, you know the shift from the, the core of European power in this early modern period away from just hard agricultural productive capacity, which is what it was in the Middle Ages, and into this sort of modern version of statecraft, where you could have a place like like Holland, which is mostly water, <laughs> and, find, <laughs> and have them be one of the great powers of Europe. And it's, you know, there's no longer this direct relationship between territory controlled and... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Uh, direct power, and I think that that sort of became clear in the European state system during, like, the Seven Years' War is a, a good as good a time as any to pin that to, because mm. afterwards everyone kind of went, well, hey, these British people are kind of lording it over us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. Whole brief period in the uh, American Revolution where it looked like the entirety of Europe was just going to gang up on England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even like people, the, a fact that most people don't know is that like everyone pretty much was at war with, with Britain during the American Revolution. Like yeah. the French and Spanish, obviously, but the Dutch were as well. That was the fourth Anglo-Dutch war as well. So, yeah. and nearly all, like the French were doing it for strategic reasons mostly, but the Dutch were in it for economic and the Spanish were in it for economic. It just it seemed like Britain had gotten too big for its boots, which... I think that's the kind of a common theme that seems to happen in Europe. I mean, actually, that's what happened in this war here, where yeah. Frederick is too big for his boots, so we all <laughs> team up against him. And it happened to Sweden at the start of the century in the Great Northern War. Sweden got too big for its boots, so Poland, Russia, and Denmark all teamed up against it. And that right. kind of led to a new epoch where Sweden was on the downward spiral and Russia was in the ascendant, so... It's interesting in international relations studies, we call that balancing where everyone, you know, the next guy who's getting big, everyone starts fearing that guy and teams <laughs> against him. 
What's interesting is that England was all was like the master class of balancing because they would always pick the weaker side against the stronger and everything. But yeah. it's interesting that they got to the point where they were the strongest side that everyone was getting a little bit scared of. Yeah, <laughs> and the tables have turned. And it's interesting as well because it was big in another way. It wasn't like they were militarily powerful. It was just that they were kind of everywhere. Like they were like the Dutch... Not to bring steroids back into it again, but <laughs> they were the Dutch on steroids because they used the technology. And this was even before the, the Industrial Revolution really propelled them ahead of everybody else. But like even at this stage, because of their like technological advances and their sensible investments and everything like that, it just seemed as though you couldn't go anywhere without... Like, you couldn't swing a cat without hitting someone British when it came to <laughs> trading. The British got too big for their boots and they brought in the whole mastery of the seas thing, which they seemed to be obsessed with. Even as early as Elizabeth the first, like that was always a, an English thing, and then it became a British thing. So people just got sick of it, really. Uh, yeah. I think Ben, to be honest, <laughs> even during no, totally, even during the, the Napoleonic Wars, a lot of the trouble that came from, you know, holding the British holding the coalitions together was just, you know, even the Austrians and the Russians were just like these British, <laughs> yeah, out for themselves. Yeah, and, and a funny thing is as well, when Napoleon was trying to organize the continental system, he was able to find fertile ground for it, in the resent, especially in the Dutch, interestingly enough, yeah. um, with the Batavian Republic that was set up there as the kind of French kind of satellite state, they essentially provided the navy, and then when the English attacked Copenhagen to sink the Danish fleet and get them out of the war before they could combine their fleets together and kind of overwhelm the British, which is another example of the, the balance of power, but... That that whole thing, I mean, to other European powers, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that the British attacked, launched an unprovoked attack on an unassuming Denmark. So see, they are a danger to all naval powers, so you must band together to destroy them. But then, of course, they, they loved the British goods too much in the end, which was the big <laughs> problem. Uh, they loved the fancier things in life, and they cared more about them rather than actually taking it to Britain economic-wise. Since it's been such a, a while since you recorded this the first time and now you're re-recording it, has your opinion of the war changed at all? Not not so much. To be honest, the major thing that's changed is that I realized how significant Frederick's survival was and how, mm. because states get absorbed all the time and like back then it was fairly common for these kinds of things to happen. States disappeared or reappeared, arguably had the Tsarina not died and been replaced by a Prussian fanboy, then <laughs> Prussia may have been subsumed by the combined Austro-Russian forces. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the fact that Frederick just held firm, and I mean, he did despair, and he said he was going to commit suicide over and over again. He said that if things didn't change, uh, he would take poison in mid-February, and then the Tsarina died a week later. So <laughs> he was saved... <laughs> That might have been a, a, a kind of hindsight uh, attribution <laughs> to him. I'm not sure if he actually promised to take poison or or if it was just added for dramatic effect, but there you yeah. go. I just found it incredible that he was able to withstand everything. Um, a lot of it was circumstantial as well. Like, Had the British not properly held the French back, then Prussia would have yeah. been attacked on all sides because the Swedes even got into it from the yeah. north. It's like everyone was in on this. Uh, it wasn't just yeah. a... It wasn't just a, a one or two way uh, assault, and that, I think that's why I, I, I found it so impressive. I kind of you kind of had this eureka moment where you're kind of looking at it the first time, and I think because I was more interested the first time in Frederick the Great's actual character and like his name and 
whether he was actually all that great after all kind of thing. <laughs> so then realizing that, I think realizing his greatness was found not necessarily. And I think 20 year old Zach as well was kind of like, Oh, why is he great? Anyway, he lost that battle. He lost that battle too. He's not great at all. But uh, I think 25 year old Zach was more able to say, yeah, he lost, but it's like how he lost and how he mobilized his population after that's what makes him great kind of thing. He had his Kobayashi Maru, uh, yeah. moment and yes yeah, he, well. did. he did he he was a survivor he, he could be called frederick the great survivor like, <laughs> to be honest because that's what he did uh, even amidst all the terrible like the errors in judgment he made i mean arguably it was it was kind of a trade-off but you could call the seizure of silesia a, a risky a risky gamble and an error in judgment because it pretty much sent set Austria against him for the next 50 or 60 years, yeah. really, until the French started making noise. Frederick mm. the Great survivor of problems of his own creation. To <laughs> yeah. <an extent. laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put him. Um, and in a way, they were mostly of his own creation. It's arguable what, what wars would have come to pass, but I suppose Frederick kind of seized the moment. He carpeed the DM or whatever, yes. whatever way it's... Is that the way to say it? I think that's the way to say it. Apparently, I always say that wrong, so I just want to make sure. <laughs> Which is why I'm great that I tried to say it now. Another thing about his character that I found interesting is that we often attribute, uh, like what I was telling you at the start about how, like, arguably today, the fact that he took Silesia because he didn't recognize a woman's rule, like, that to us is kind of uh, controversial, but yet <laughs> history has labeled him the great. And I think it's interesting in a way that I think you could say that that's a skeleton in his closet. And I think it's interesting to find such skeletons and kind of contrast them with other good things he did and, and give a proper judgment of his character. And also the significance of the fact that he was there at the helm of Prussia for 46 years was a huge part of his legend as well. And yeah. almost almost as soon as he died, Prussia was pretty much on a downward spiral. But some historians would say that it's kind of, kind of like the Bismarck effect, another effect term that yeah. I just made up right here and now. <laughs> the way that people always say, oh, as soon as he left the scene, everything went to hell. But in reality, things were going to hell in the final years of his kind of position in power. For yeah. like, uh, like in Bismarck's last few years, Russia was so insulted by the fact that it had lost Bulgaria and Germany had kind of acquiesced that Germany and Russia were almost irreconcilable. Uh, by the late 1880s and then yeah. when uh, Bismarck was gone from the scene in 1890 it was like just the logical culmination of that and Wilhelm arguably didn't have that much to do with it but then on yeah. the other hand he had loads to do with it but that's another story <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that I do think that one of the strengths of democracy is that you're not so tied to one leader be they good or bad you know oh, yeah you, you don't have Alexander the Great moments where you're just really tied to this great guy, but he's the only thing holding everything together <laughs> uh, personally. Yeah. So we, we started off by talking about the colonial conflicts. Um, has your opinion of those in relation to the main theater changed at all in that in uh, the last five years? I think being able to kind of comprehend what France was trying to do with its whole like trying to find success in Europe and then trade it off for the colonial theater be that mm -hmm. in India or North America. I think I kind of understand that better now than I did the first time. I was kind of like, well, what are the French doing? They're just losing everywhere. <laughs> Where in actual fact, they were trying in Europe. They were just really bad. So it just made it look like they yeah. were losing everywhere. 
Yeah, in the War of Austrian Succession, they had successfully employed that strategy, uh, much to the chagrin of the colonists, I, I should say. Massachusetts uh, and the New England militiamen had been key in taking the fort of Lewisburg in what's now Nova Scotia. And it was a very bloody thing because the colonists were operating without cannon. It was basically a European-style star fortification. Yeah. Um, but the, the militiamen, I mean... This isn't so clear now where the New Englanders are all the, the peaceniks and the hippies, but, you know, back in the colonial days, New England was the frontier that was right up against the Native Americans the most and just had a century or so of conflict behind it. Sure. And they were humorless Puritans. And so, <laughs> you know, they they took your Lewisburg in this massively bloody, just complete assault, go up the wall, regardless of casualties. Yeah. Uh, took the fort and then you know a year or two later the british traded it back to france in return for you know some concessions in hanover or whatever i, I don't even oh, remember that's <laughs> <a> sting. Yeah. <laughs> the, the new englanders were super pissed no yeah as you would be Janie mac that reminds me now this is a i don't know how have you ever have you ever played much total war games yeah um i'm a big fan although i i'm always like 10 years behind <laughs> Or oh, so am I, um, mainly out of necessity rather than anything else. Like, the most advanced one I'm able to play is Empire Total War, so... That's what I'm on right now, too, actually, so... Oh, cool! Well, actually, do you know what? This looks really set up and really convenient, but I was just <laughs> going to talk... That sounds like that cold bloody siege idea. It sounds like the yes. number of times when... Um, I remember one time specifically, and uh, anyone who just doesn't play computer games, sorry about this, It's it's like when... I kind of underestimated the natives, so to speak, because they they held this fort and uh, it was in it was in one of the North America, and I was trying to unite. It's like you unite a certain amount of colonies as Britain, and then the thirteen colonies basically join you at the start of the game, kind of thing. So I assaulted with with like a very small number of of soldiers this uh, fort <laughs> held by loads of natives, and I didn't have any cannon at all, but uh, I besieged them, and I thought, oh sure, I'll just attack them now; it'll be grand. And uh, they absolutely destroyed me. So <laughs> I think uh, in a roundabout way, it's kind of a lesson for in practical terms. I mean, you need to, in this day and age, I think, and this kind of brings us handily into the way warfare changed as well, because the yes. 1700s was kind of like a playground almost of new military theories and everything else. Uh, I was talking to Stephen Gare about this and he asked me, did I think like military kind of practice changed much over the 16 and 1700s? And I think the big thing was you had kind of reputations and kind of military legends. Like at the start of the 1600s, it was like the Spanish Turkio formations, the kind of squares of, yeah. of pikemen and stuff. The Spanish Turkios, they can never break. They never break kind of thing. And right then up when, until they met Gustavus yeah, right, Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. And right up until they break and then everyone's horrified. And similar, similarly, you had kind of like, oh, the, the cannon tactics uh, of the Swedes are like second to none. And then someone outdoes them in cannon and it's like, oh, what a surprise kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then in the 1700s, you actually have like genuine tactics coming to the fore. Like in this war, you have uh, what Frederick the Great's favorite tactic to use to the extent that it was almost predictable when he was going to use it was something called the Oblique Order, which basically yeah. involved attacking an, an army's entire flank with all of his own army and basically forcing the army to react he did this so often, but his his greatest loss was at Kunersdorf, where he attacked an Austro an Austro Russian army, 
And the Russians basically countered this by just moving their flank away rather than panicking <laughs> and being like, oh no, now we have to respond when we're yeah. on the back foot kind of thing. And it sounds really obvious, but it's similar with uh, John Churchill, uh, the Duke of Marlborough at the War of the Spanish Succession. His favorite tactic, and I can't remember what this was called, but what he used to do was attack the flanks so that the center would be thinned out and then he'd attack the center in a massive right. attack, uh, which would throw the whole army back kind of thing. And it worked at certain times, but the whole result of that, of John Churchill's thing, and part of the reason he got the reputation as being such a so careless with his soldiers' lives was that <laughs> strategies like that cost so much manpower because you're basically yeah. attacking head-on into yeah. the center. So, yeah. Well, that was a massive tangent, but... That's it. I'm very into military history, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole development of firepower... The, the firepower conception of warfare over the course of like the 16th and 17th centuries, having commanders like Frederick start to be able to play around with it and start using tactics rather than concentrating on just making sure they had enough guns pointed in the right direction, sure. which is harder than you'd think <laughs> when you're yeah. dealing with muskets. Yeah, exactly. And a big part of it as well. Um, I mean, deception still played a massive role in warfare at this stage. There's no point in denying it, but like a lot of it was trying out these new kinds of um, r- rather than being rather than like hiding men or or trying to be sneaky or tactical or or getting a spy or that kind of thing stuff that would have been kind of more common like before the Thirty Years War and the Thirty Years War was a great playground as well wherein new theories were tried out but there wasn't now as far as I know there was great there was great generals but uh, I think one one uh, one example. The, the only real Allied general floating around in the early 1620s was uh, Ernst of Mansfield. He, as far as I know, he never won a single battle. But, uh, he was like a mercenary kind of kind of captain kind of guy. But he, the Allies went back to him time and again. He didn't really have any kind of tactical imagination. He just tended to rely on the tried and tested methods. Which, right. uh, even though they failed time and again, he still went back to the still went back to the same well over and over. Yeah. There you go. It's I, I don't know, I, and I can't remember my own point now. The way that warfare changes throughout the centuries, and I think kind of culminates in Napoleon's grand kind of tactical genius with the way that he used men and the way he viewed the battlefield as well. Yeah. Um, and even indeed like Arthur Wellesley, like the Duke of Wellington, in, in the course of like the Battle of Waterloo, apparently... Now, I'm not sure. These are the kinds of like things that I think are attributed to people after they're long gone. But supposedly, the Duke of Wellington was able to look at a battlefield and like know, like just from looking at it, like the heights of certain hills and like where it would be best to place, like certain things, like things that you would normally hire, like the likes of engineers or that kind of thing, to actually go and inspect. Like he was apparently able to just know these things just by looking at the land. I think that's kind of. A bit of yep. a load, to be honest, but <laughs> um, some people like taking taking the likes of military theory and how to use men best and all that kind of thing. I think it it's growing during the 1700s, and I think it reaches it reaches its fruition then in the in the Napoleonic Wars, and then ironically, this kind of a it kind of goes backwards, and then it just turns into a meat grinder by the early 1900s. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. First of all, and you know, there's a lot. Of reasons behind that, one of the big ones being that no one fought a war after Napoleon for a good long time, and yeah. it's sort of a, a calcification of European tactics when they weren't experimenting. One of the other things is that during this whole period, like technology was advancing, but it wasn't advancing much. The tactics were advancing, and the way people were using the technology was advancing. But you know, 
once you get to like Gustavus Adolphus and the birth of firepower tactics and stuff, you're not seeing huge changes. Everyone's pretty much using muskets, which are just a tube filled with gunpowder and a ball. <laughs> um, yeah, very it, true. It's just that up until, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, um, the big advancement was like someone put a pointy bit on one end <laughs> so they didn't be <laughs> pikemen anymore. Yeah. And they, they advanced how they moved their cannons around by attaching horses to them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I get what you're saying. It's like there was a saturation in the technology and it seemed like it was only going so far. So they did the best they could with it. But the result being that invention rather than technology reached a kind of peak. And it's almost like people got lazy once they invented new technologies. They didn't bother inventing the new, I suppose because technology was moving so fast, they didn't bother inventing the new tactics to go with them. Well, I mean, for this whole period when the European officer corps was learning, learning their business, there were changes in technology, but it didn't affect the fundamental rules of the battlefield. And then, then they didn't have any more wars. <laughs> this feeling that, you know, during the entire 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, you know, technology changed, but it didn't really fundamentally affect the rules of the battlefield. Mm. And then they all got trained in that lesson and then didn't feel like when someone invented a machine gun, it was something that was important enough to change how they fought. Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest illustration of that, when the French, the the Franco-Prussian War stands out as like an example of kind of technology sort of outpacing human imagination, in a sense, because the Prussians in that case had, and I go into this with uh, Travis in, in our collaboration episode, but the Prussians had the needle gun, which was significantly inferior to the uh, the French, and I can't remember the name of the. I think it was a chassepot rifle. I can't quite remember. Yeah, but that's, the, that's right. Yeah, it was it was much better, much superior. But the French also had this uh, curious looking thing called the mitrailleuse, which was basically like a French version of the Gatling gun. But right. The French had absolutely no idea how to use it, so they'd been it, given these things, but they they hadn't been properly instructed how to use them. So rather than have where we would think you'd have a Gatling gun, like on the front line or using it as a machine gun, they used it like a cannon because it looked like a cannon to them. (laughs) Uh, So as a result, it was like useless. So I think that's a kind of, it's like technology outpaced human beings' ability to kind of cope with all these changes. And I'm sure a lot of the French generals during the Battle of Sedan or what have you, during the Franco-Prussian War, were probably longing for the days when it was just a simple case of, you men go here, you men go there, and we wait <laughs> out, kind of see what happens. Yeah. So uh, before we go, uh, before we wrap this up, uh, Ben, would you like to plug yourself? Sure. So I'm Ben Jacobs. I do the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, the, which is about the Wars of the Reformation, although I haven't actually gotten to the Wars of the Reformation yet. I'm doing a, a real deep dive into the origins first. And so you can find my podcast on basically the best way to go is the the website, which is Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast dot weebly dot com. I also have a Facebook page on Twitter, but uh, you can get to all of that through the website. So go check that out. And the, the podcast is on iTunes. So most podcatchers will have it. Cool. Cool. And I've often considered your uh, your podcast like a kind of precursor to mine. If you want to get down and find out why exactly, because I mean, in in our in when diplomacy fails we've kind of just accepted we've come to terms with the fact that the holy roman empire is like a strange beast and that there isn't really much like it in the world 
or in history, so it's better to just accept it as it is and kind of move <laughs> on. I'm sure if you haven't tangled yourself up in knots yet with the Holy Roman Empire, I'm sure I'm sure there's still time for you to do so. Yes. But uh, I would I would advise listeners to kind of to go there to to Wittenberg to Westphalia if they want to kind of understand where the likes of the Thirty Years' War came from. I mean, I suppose it's it's in the title really to Westphalia. Does that mean you're going to stop in 1648? Uh, I actually no. Um... <laughs> I'm focusing on the wars of religion generally, uh, just because I started I started out wanting to do the Thirty Years' War and just kind of found that the the limits of any of the wars in this period are a little bit arbitrary. So I wanted to focus on the subject of religious wars, which, uh, as you've touched on in your show, mm. spills out past the end of the Thirty Years' War quite a bit. Yeah, uh, and so I'm basically planning to go up to the Glorious Revolution in 1688 and and i'm also gonna do an epilogue where i talk a bit about the north american colonies and spanish america and some stuff like that but that's all years in the future Mm. you can see and say it's it's 1688 years in the future at this (laughs) rate (laughs) yeah i mean i know you're a stickler for details but you do a good job good job Mm. i really enjoy uh hitting all these stories that i dig up along the way like I just finished a series on this one Italian family called the Gadeshi that were a bunch of lovable scamps, much like Frederick the Great. So, <laughs> did Frederick? Did, did they have as many fans in in quotation marks as uh, Frederick the Great had? There were several points during the story where they were fighting the entirety of Europe. Yes, <laughs> sounds like Frederick, all right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Well, that's just a small taster then of the. The number of, of anecdotes. That's what I love about forgotten, oh, you could say forgotten periods of history, the likes of which you're looking into. But I mean, religious wars, huge impact on the way our world developed. And I'm not going to bring up the whole uh, piece of Westphalia thing because it, re- <laughs> it really grinds my gears. And if you need to know why, go and look at WDF Asks listeners. But normally it's like it normally goes in a, a kind of common trend. Countries, empires, what have you, they sort out their religious stuff, then they become a beast and then they still have to deal with the religious tensions that still exist, like exhibit France or, say, Britain or even Spain to a degree, and then the Dutch as well. Um, so I just think it's it's good that the likes of yourself are actually giving those kinds of issues and, and wars, like, pe- the peace of mind that they need, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So I hope everyone well, takes a listen. Good. Well, Wittenberg to Westphalia. Check it out, guys. Thanks very much for coming on and uh, talking to me more about... Seven Years' War, and the lovable scamp that is Frederick. Thanks very much. Ah, what did you think? I liked that. I really did enjoy that. I must say, the one thing I've learned from myself being in these podcasts is that I really need to rein myself in sometimes. Not in a bad way, just I appreciate the fact that I have a guest on, and if I go on a tangent myself and spend about two minutes trying to reach the question that I'm trying to ask, it can be a bit frustrating for you guys, but that's because of the way my brain works, really. I could think of a question that it would be a great idea to ask, and then in the course of asking that question, I think of great facts to pepper into the question, sort of giving a background to the question that I'm trying to ask which can be good, but can also confuse people and probably frustrate them as well. But Ben put up with me, as do all the others, so 
yeah, I think it went pretty well. I was happy with it, and I was really happy to get Ben on as well, because he has a tiny human, as you might have heard from the background crying a few times. Hey, we're all just guys, we're all just dudes and gals trying to pod, and sometimes life gets in the way, and sometimes life throws a baby human at you, and you have to do your very best with that baby human to record in between the screams. I thought it was hard enough to record in between the trains going by, but... At least the trains can be timed. The tiny human screams can't be timed. So fair play to Ben Jacobs. He's got a tiny human and he's still doing this. He's still plugging away. He's doing a great job. So support him. Remember, you can find his podcast, Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast dot Check him out, guys. He deserves it. He's a good guy. He's also a member of the Agora podcast network, just like me. And he also appreciates the support of history friends just like me. If you'd like to go to WDFpodcast.com and check out what When Diplomacy Fails has to offer you guys, that'd be great too. You could even choose to be a monthly history friend. Give a small amount every month. Failing that, tell everyone about this remastered project. Tell them how crazy I am, how many guests I have on, what exactly I am capable of, how ridiculous my ambition and passion for history has grown in these five years, and... What exactly it is I'm doing every single day for five weeks. The Japanese ran wild for six months, but I think after five weeks, you'll be pretty much defeated. That's my plan anyway. Well, thanks for listening on that note. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 